Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christy Getting a Saturdays. Today is Saturday, June 8th, 2013. Today we'll, we will present part 22 of our series addressing the Paul Bashing articles of Clayton Douglas. We're going to have to live with this, right? Here we shall commence with our address of Douglas's second Paul Bashing article entitled Saul of Tarsus and His Doctrine of Lawlessness which he published in the January 2004 edition of his Free American News magazine. Douglas, while attempting to discredit Paul Tarsus, instead consistently discredits his own person by making all sorts of false accusations and inconsistent statements. His ludicrous statements get even wilder as his articles come to a close. Most notably, however, is that while claiming to be a Christian, Douglas even rejects many of the primary tenets of Christianity found throughout the prophets and confirmed by the Gospels, that Yahshua Christ was the Messiah and Redeemer of our Israelite race. While in the second article, Douglas merely often repackages the trashy dispute in his first article, which we hope to have already discussed sufficiently, he does add new twists and additional claims as he proceeds. And so the second article, like his first, must also be addressed in its entirety. The material being presented here tonight first appeared in Clifton Amaheiser's Watchman's Teaching Letters, numbers 105 and 106, January and February of 2007. On last night's program, I announced that this would certainly be the last of this series of, on the Paul bashing of Clayton Douglas. I was certainly in error reviewing this material, since indeed there is plenty enough material here to do two more programs if we also add a general summary of, of, of summation of Clayton Douglas and an assessment at tail end, something which Sword Brethren suggested and which we shall consider in the coming weeks. So this will be the next to last address of Clayton Douglas's Paul bashing. Douglas certainly fails as an identist, but he even fails as a basic mainstream Christian. He, there's no major tenet of Christianity that he actually accepts. He's just a Pharisee and a Sadducee, and he's essentially a secularist, a humanist. He, he would keep good company to hang out with John Spong. Well, well, that's it. He has no idea what Christianity is, even from the mainstream perspective. He, he has not a clue. And the mainstream perspective gets half of it right. Douglas doesn't have that. Douglas doesn't even understand the atonement or the resurrection or the Nothing. fulfillment of prophecy. Nothing. Nothing. He doesn't understand. He's denied all of, all of the uh, major precepts of Christianity. He's denied all, he, he's denied the entire ministry of Christ. He, he's denied the reason for the, for the need for a Messiah for Israel. We should it, call it's not understood, so it, it's definitely not understood from a proper perspective. This article should be called Clay Douglas and his Doctrine of Lawlessness, or just Clay, Clay Douglas and his Doctrine of Cluelessness. Well, well right, or stupidity, or, or just in, insert your adjective, that any, any synonym would do. All right. Reference 76. Clay Douglas states, Paul used pseudo-philosophical arguments that went in circles. He told James that he had no right to judge him, attempting to allude to teachings of James's brother that were taken out of context. So... Douglas wants to talk about pseudo-philosophical arguments when he's made appeals to magicians and poets and socialist, liter you know, socialist literature. He's going to talk about pseudo-philosophical, and he's making appeals to magicians. That's, that's, 
spectacularly amazing. It, it's almost it, it defies belief. Well, well, right. It, it's and it gets worse. It gets worse as this article proceeds. It, it gets a lot worse. The, the um. Well, well, Douglas makes no citations again, right? There are no citations. Paul's meetings with James are recorded in two places, in Acts chapter 15 and in Acts chapter 21. And in neither place did Paul ever argue with James. And Paul showed, the record shows, that Paul gave his elders, and James was his elder, deference in, in every way. He deferred to James's wishes. He complied with all of James's um well, well, I don't want to call them commands, but all of James's requests. Paul's letter mentions James. Paul's letters mention James in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, in Galatians chapters 1 and 2. Nowhere was Paul ever recorded as telling James that he had no right to judge him. Clayton Douglas is the comedian from the Dead Sea Strolls. Well, who doesn't really exist, but since Douglas invented the character, he should wear the label. Absolutely. It's incredible. It's it's just lies. It's lie after lie after lie. It's the Paul bashers. You know, Douglas had um, some arguments that that may have um, fooled the, the unsuspecting, not really acquainted with scripture type Christian um, through through the first article and through the beginning of the second article. He did have some and and even in this later part where he talks about the Dead Sea Scrolls. That material might trick some people into at least suspecting that he was telling the truth about something. But now he's resorting to, like, outright lies and, and, and blatant, and, and they're just so obviously untrue that, that I don't know how any Christian could, who read this far could ever be fooled. And this, this makes everything else he look like. It, it really brings it to life. So he's really desperate here. Well, well, right, and it gets worse. It, it gets worse. It, it really gets worse when he, in, in this next section, it gets worse. It's funny. This is funny, this next section. Reference 77A, Douglas states, here's absolutely one of favorite, here's absolutely one of favorite, oh, missing word, Paulinisms repeated every day by millions of boneheaded people. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. And well, before I go on any further, I'm, I'm immediately, you know, bells are going off in my head that Paul didn't write the Gospel of Matthew. So, where, where does Douglas get off claiming that this is a Paulinism? Well, well, right. That, that's what's really incredible about this it, is that this, you know, these words of Christ are attested to in Matthew, and, and they're also attested to in Luke, but. Matthew wrote Matthew, and Paul didn't write. I, I mean, Paul didn't write Matthew. It, there's that there's a a, a, um, a plethora of ancient attestation 
that the Apostle Matthew wrote the gospel of that name. There's not, not one shred of evidence that Paul had anything to do with it. Right, so does Douglas understand that Matthew and Paul are two different names and two different people, and Matthew wrote Matthew and Paul wrote the letters of Paul? Well, well Douglas, you know, Douglas, if you remember, at the beginning of the first article, he blames Paul for writing two-thirds of the New Testament, he claimed, and, and really Paul's letters amount to about 25 percent, you know, probably not quite, but around there, and... and um, now I understand how Douglas arrived at two-thirds. It's because he's claiming Paul wrote Matthew. And next, he, he, I guess he's going to say Paul wrote John and Luke. Or Luke might as well have been written by Paul since Luke was Paul's cheerleader. Well, well I'm sure he'll pick out parts of that, of, of John and Luke, which Douglas doesn't like, and attribute them to Paul. I mean, why not? Just go through the Bible and anything you don't like, blame on Paul. Here's something. Paul. And, and dismiss it because it must be Paul. Douglas's reference 77A, he continues to quote, Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and then turn and tear you to pieces. That's wonderful advice, and I suggest we apply that to Douglas. Don't cast the pearls before swine such as, you know, Cherokee Douglas. And Douglas has the audacity to say, How many times have you heard this? I'll bet you hundreds. So how dare you hear the gospel of Jesus? <laughs> Well, well these, these words have everything to do with uh, with sharing the truth with the unworthy and, and also with hypocritical judgment, right? Uh, and this is the advice to Christ, not advice of Christ. It's the words of Christ recorded in Matthew that are also recorded elsewhere in Luke, and, and, and it's warning us against the hypocritical judgment of our brethren. It, 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 there's nothing wrong with these words. I mean, they're common sense to, to anybody with a pure heart. And Douglas is not telling us what he thinks is wrong with these words. Yeah, you know, he, there's not, what does Douglas think is wrong with these words first, right? And, and he doesn't say anything about that. He just says that these words are repeated by millions of boneheaded people and, and then the, he calls it Apollonism when actually it was recorded in Matthew. Right, so these are the direct words of Christ as recorded by one of his own first-hand disciples. And he, he doesn't tell us what, 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 what does he take issue with, that we're being told not to judge people hypocritically? So does, does, would he prefer to go through life and hypocritically cast judgments on people? Well, well, right. Well, he's he's been hypocritically casting judgment on Paul Tarsus for, for about 20,000 words now. Right, and then he refers right. to anybody who listens to this gospel passage as a bonehead, so he's cast judgment on millions of people. Well, well he's cast judgment on, on millions of people all down through time, and he's cast judgment on God himself, because those are the words of Christ. Right. And only a Jew would cast judgment against God. Well, that's the pattern that that's the pattern that they've exhibited for for um, thousands of years now. Well, I think the Talmud even says that God consults the rabbis when making decisions, and that a rabbi can defeat God in a debate. Well, well, it it does boast the the opinions of the rabbis. I know that it boasts that the opinions of the rabbis are weightier than the word of God. Yes. And if Douglas isn't one himself, he was certainly educated primarily by them. 
Well, well, my first response to this was it was one of the most idiotic pieces of commentary I've ever seen on the Bible. And it still is. I mean, except for maybe a few of Eli James's comments. Well, this is, this is even worse than John Spong. Because right. John Spong is just an out-of-the-closet pervert who doesn't really pull any punches about being a secularist. And I don't think John Spong would do anything as incredible as claiming Paul wrote Matthew. He, he might just say Matthew's not relevant anymore because we live in a post-theism age. Well, well, Douglas had plenty of charges against Paul of Tarsus that at least what were about things that were written or said that Paul had written and said. And this is ridiculous that, that um, he, he just pulls this verse out and, and disparages it without telling us why he disliked it and, and then attributes it to Paul when they're actually the words of Christ like Matthew. That's incredible. It shows that now you, would, you, you had... Um, set forth the proposition several times that whoever wrote this article had, had actually known what he was talking about with the Bible. And, and I'm, I'm not going to doubt that because many times it seems that the person that wrote this did know what they were talking about but were purposely lying, right? Right. They read the scripture and understood its basic components. But this, um, this really puts that theory to question uh, unless this person really expects the reader to not check on this passage and just accept the, the, the statement that it belongs to Paul, even though Douglas added the citation that it's in the Gospel of Matthew. So that's maybe, really incredible. Maybe he figured if they're still reading after, you know, the two or three hundred little lies and medium-sized lies, boom, it's time for a big lie. I guess the Hitler's big lie, right? He explained it. I mean, you know what? it's a big lie. I've got, a, I've got a huge problem with Paul. If you read the, the third part of the Communist Manifesto, their platform, number three, abolition <laughs> of all rights of inheritance, damn it, that, 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 that's another issue against Paul. I have a problem with Paul for that. You, you may as well blame him on all the evil in the world. All, all the evil in the world about Paul of Tarsus, right? But, but these, are, these are the words of Christ. They're not even evil. Douglas isn't even telling us what he thinks is wrong with them. Well, what's wrong with them is they're the words of Christ. Yeah, yeah, right. Well, that's what a Jew would think is wrong with me. The next reference? Yes. 77B. Douglas states, here's the real deal. Christianity, and I mean real Christianity, is the most intolerant religion there is. It ought to make you proud. It isn't lukewarm. It isn't a namby-pamby, politically correct liberal religion. It is a set of laws specified by God himself, which supplies us with the correct parameters by which we can judge the actions of others. But suddenly, Paul is retraining us that we must not judge others. Lawlessness is just dandy. Don't say a word. Do not condemn or else. But that's okay and quite acceptable, at least according to the legions of Christians who will immediately rise to Paul Saul's defense. And just right off the bat, did Douglas even read this before he stuck his name to it? I have to wonder now. I don't know, but it's really funny because Douglas absolutely hates me for being a racist. Right. You're an intolerant, judgmental person, and he prefers a namby-pamby, politically correct, limp-wristed, you know, liberal religion. Evidently. And, and uh, I mean, he, he does. He's mentioned it on his program, uh, on the Free American Hour, on Blog Talk. He's even threatened to beat me up because I'm, an, I'm a, a wicked, evil racist. So, so it's 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 incredible that um, 
Yet, you know, a man who would want to enforce the laws of God, who Douglas is like history's biggest hypocrite. He's more hypocritical than, than Lenin and Marx. I mean, this is incredible. Beyond that, he's an idiot, too. So he's a hypocrite and an idiot, and he's arrogant. Yes. He thinks he knows everything, but he really doesn't know anything. Right. Now, the words of Christ have to do with his hypocritical judgment, and Paul actually taught us in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 that we were to judge the lawless, and we were to expel them from our company. And, and from our communities, what we were to expel the lawless from our communities. We were to expel unrepentant sinners. In, in the case of 1 Corinthians chapter 5, it's a fornicator. And, and we're to expel those people from our communities, to, t- to put the wicked away from amongst us. And Paul quoted, I believe, Leviticus in, in, in making that comment. And... and um, Paul sought to uphold the law in that instance. Touch not the unclean thing. Well, well in, in this case, fornication was used. Of, of Fornication is any sort of illicit sex. Right. And in this case, it was a man and his father's wife. Now, now race mixing is also fornication, but it's only one form of it. Right. So fornication is a broad general term, meaning any sort of sexual uncleanliness. Right. Well, well, right. Well, well, evil people, unrepentant sinners, are to be put out from our midst. And, and that was the lesson of Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. So, so Douglas is being a hypocrite here in, in uh, judging Paul for things that Christ said, taking what Christ said out of context, and, and then blaming Paul for having done some wrong. Right, but he, Douglas is also advocating things in this article that he doesn't believe in. He doesn't believe in supporting intolerance. He doesn't believe in taking strong moral stances. He doesn't believe in judging others. So why is he criticizing Paul for supposedly advocating tolerance and non-judgmentalism? Because he evidently believes in crafty arguments in order to help dismantle the New Testament which is the real goal of the Jews. So he's advocating positions that he himself vehemently opposes just to try and win an argument. Absolutely. It's totally evident. That's incredibly dishonest. Clayton Douglas is an incredibly dishonest man. This article proves it time and again. Although the only other alternative would be that, you know, he was zonked out on some acid trip and didn't really read what he was sticking his name to. Just a possibility I'm throwing out there, or it could just be that he's an incredibly hypocritical enemy agent trying to wreck the, the church. Right. Now, now this is, you know, I'm not going to say that all Paul Bashers are incredibly dishonest, but there seems to be a pattern here, right? Right. Because they're, they're, Graber, Graber was incredibly dishonest, and, and Douglas it is ten times more dishonest and more blatantly a liar than Graber was. In Graeber's defense, if you want to call it his defense, he was also incredibly stupid at a point where he could barely spell his own name right. <laughs> right. Well, it, it's um, I, I, I don't know. I'm my own editor, and sometimes that's difficult. Right, but I mean, Graeber misspelled. He mis he would misspell the same word three different ways in the same paragraph, and he couldn't even spell testament. Which I I, I don't know how you get a, a a doctoral title, how how you become a PhD. And what, I would assume, theological studies if you can't spell testament. 
I just think if you're going to put yourself out there as a scholar, your article should at least be free of basic grammar and spelling errors. Well, Microsoft Word does that, right? Right. So Douglas is incredibly dishonest and it seems ignorant of large parts of the Bible and Graber is just a fool. If these are the best that Paul Bashers have, though, I mean, what what next? Are they going to bring John Spong into their corner? Well, well, right. I, I have found the um, the approach of the Paul Bashers to the Bible to be very incomplete, to be very piecemeal, and and they tend to easily take things out of context and and, and apply to them meanings which they never had. And I think a lot of them know what they're doing when they're doing that. that that's my view of the Paul Bashers in the best light. You mean in the best light? They're well intentioned. Yeah, yeah, right. The best light. Whether they're doing it purposely or not, they're taking things out of context, and 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 they're they're not um, assessing the scripture properly in the context and and in the historical context and cultural context in which it was written. And, and that's, like, that's what I found of all the Paul Bashers I've encountered. Whether they're doing it purposely or not, or, or whether they understand that their method of, of exegesis has shortcomings is immaterial. Right, and at the end of the day, intentions don't matter. The one servant who took the one coin and went and buried it thinking he was doing his master a favor, he wasn't doing his master any favors. Well, well that's why James warns us that there should be few teachers because they shall receive the greater judgment. All right. Reference 77C. Douglas states, I repeat to you again, Matthew 5, 17, 20, do not think that I am come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter... Not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do so, the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. So now what? Are, are we to assume that Paul wrote the parts of Matthew that Douglas takes issue with, but then Matthew wrote Matthew 5.17. So Paul couldn't possibly have written Matthew 5.17 telling people not to abolish the law because Paul's just a lawless beast. <laughs> so so, so what, they, they, they sat down and one guy writes chapter 5, then someone else does chapter 6, Paul writes chapter 7. This is incredible. Well, well that's how, how you, you had um, suggested that these articles were written, right, by two or three different people because it really did seem like that. At, at diverse times. Douglas alone here determines which parts of Matthew's Gospel were, were written by Matthew and which parts of Matthew's Gospel were written by Paul. That, that's, that, that's basically the assertion that he's making here. He's, he, he's disparaging Matthew chapter 7 and blaming that on Paul while he's quoting and embracing Matthew chapter 5 and attributing that to Matthew. It's incredible. And really, he's not understanding Matthew chapter 7, and he himself cannot um, synthesize the two scriptures. That's his problem. That's not Paul's problem. Paul didn't write it. Uh, only an idiot could, could 
imagine being able to do what Douglas has done here and an arrogant idiot at that. Well, you know, there's nothing worse than an arrogant idiot because he he doesn't know anything. He thinks he knows everything, and he's too stupid to realize that he doesn't know anything. Now, realize that Douglas insists on using the Hebrew names for the law and the prophets, the Torah, the Tanakh. Usually that indicates that the author has a, a, a strongly Jewish reading background if he's not a Jew. And then he referred to the prophets as the Nevim. Right. The, the Hebrew, the, he, he's using the Hebrew words for the prophets and the law. The Nevim, is he trying to look intelligent or did a Jew write this? How many Christians know that the prophets are called the Nevi'im in, in Hebrew, right? And he, that sometimes the, the, they've referred to Jesus as Esau, and haven't they used Yeshua occasionally? I haven't seen Yeshua. Uh, I've seen Esu and, and Yesu and Jesus. I, I don't think I've seen Yeshua. That would be a dead giveaway. Right. Yeshua, when they, if they write Yeshua with an E, that's a smoking gun. Right, that that indicates a definite Jewish influence in the writing or the fact that a Jew wrote the original. But we are seeing distinct writing patterns. Some people that consistently refer to him as Yahshua Christ, others who call him Esu Emmanuel, the Christ, the Messiah, That they're, they're changing the proper nouns. Well, well right, he, he's, use, he's using these... Um, arcane versions of the name of Christ and that, that aren't really used in Christian circles in the first place. So I'd like to ask Douglas if he's going to claim, you know, Paul wrote Matthew 7, Matthew wrote Matthew 5, I'd like to ask Douglas, okay, well, if Douglas wrote reference 77B, who wrote reference, you know, 72A? Well, well right, the truth is Douglas didn't write any of it. but he stuck his name to it, so he's getting all the flack for it. And, and the amazing thing is that, the, that they're quoting Christ and giving us Hebrew terms in, in this Matthew 5. But, but there's, there's no um, Hebrew version of Matthew available, right? There is no Hebrew version of the Gospel of Matthew, but which is from the first century. We don't have one. It doesn't exist. That the um the, the the original copies we have are all Greek. The same thing with the letters of Paul, correct? Yes. But he must. Well, we move on to um, reference seventy-eight. Uh, I gather. Clayton Douglas states James, the brother of Jesus, spoke out against Paul of Tarsus in this profound and pivotal incident. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit, as your fathers did, so you do. Which of the prophets didn't your fathers persecute? They killed those who foretold the coming of the righteous one, of whom you have now become betrayers and murders. You received the law as it was ordained by angels and didn't keep it. Now when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed at him with their teeth, but he, being full of the Holy Spirit, looked up steadfastly in the heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God and said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Adam 
standing at the right hand of God, Acts 7, 51 through 56. And I'm immediately wondering, so this is supposed to be James condemning Paul, but he's referring to you, they, your fathers. This is all plural. So unless Paul has a split personality and, you know, he has three or four personalities that James is addressing at once, it's, it's clear to me James is speaking to a group of men. Well, well, right, but the sad part is these aren't even the words of James, right? These are the words of the martyr, Stephen, from Acts chapter 7, before his death. And Douglas is attributing the words of the martyr, Stephen, to James. And these words weren't meant for Paul in particular. They were meant for the high priest, the elders, and the council of the Judeans in general. And it states that explicitly. And that's evident once you read the full story from Stephen's arrest, which is related in Acts chapter 6, verses 8 through 15, and in Acts chapter 7. So, so whoever wrote this can't read, or is a purposeful deceiver, or is an idiot. There's no other choices, right? This person's either a deceiver or an idiot. There's no third choice. Well, I mean, right off the bat, reading it, it's clear that a group is being addressed. You can't get around that. Well, well, right. And 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 whether Paul was a member of the group or not, because Paul was part of the opposition at the stoning of Stephen, but all Paul did was take a passive role and watch the clothing of the men who actually undertook the task. So, so Paul's role is passive. Whether Stephen was addressing a group which included Paul or not is immaterial. Douglas is lying about the nature of the address. As you, as you said, the nature of the address is clearly, it's aimed at a group, and the words belong to Stephen and not to James. And whoever wrote that should clearly understand that. Well, well right. I mean, it's a clear, it, it's, a, it's one of the biggest stories in, in the early days of Christianism. The words of the modern Stephen. It's incredible that they're attributed to James, and then with the claim that Paul was the the primary recipient of these words is absurd. Reference seventy nine a Douglas states. Here's an account about James, the elders running with Saul Paul. Quote. In the recognitions of Clement, we also learn of someone named Saul, one of our enemies, who upon entering the temple with a few other companions while James was reading and interpreting Bible prophecy concerning Jesus, began to cry out. And while James was refuting him, he began to drive all into confusion with shouting and undo what was arranged with much labor. A riot ensues, in the midst of which this enemy attacked James and threw him headlong from the top of the temple steps and supposing him to be dead, cared not to inflict further violence upon him. Though James doesn't die here, both his legs were broken. This is the act of a man you say is now anointed. Paul broke both of James's legs. So is Clement now a, a Bible authority? Well, well, well Douglas is, is twisting Clement now, right? Clement lived and wrote long after the deaths of both Paul of Tarsus and James the Elder. And, and he he knew who Paul was, 
And Clement quoted from and followed Paul and never identified the Saul who attacked James as Paul of Tarsus. There is a Saul, which is a rather popular Hebrew name, right? There is a Saul amongst the Sadducees in the first century AD but who, who were persecuting the Christians. That's a clear matter in the writing of Josephus. The Sadducees are um, blamed by Josephus for the stoning and death of James in 62 AD. Paul meets with James as recorded in Acts chapter 21, and Paul is arrested, and Paul never returns to Jerusalem again after his arrest. He's never set free again. He's never a free man again. After his arrest, recorded in Acts chapters 21 and 22, Paul is sent to Rome at least two years before the death of James and has nothing to do with death and persecution of James. And that's all very, very clear in history. It can be actually chronologically dated from statements in Acts compared to statements in Josephus. What where Paul is sent to um, what where Paul is sent to Rome in the days of Festus, who was the procurator of Judea, and, and then Festus is um, Festus dies after Paul sent to Rome because Festus is the one that sent Paul to Rome, and Festus dies and Albinus becomes the procurator, and while Albinus is assuming his post. The Sadducees are persecuting James and, and kill him. And Paul had nothing to do with any of that. Not a thing. And, and that's all well recorded in history, in the pages of Josephus and in the pages of Acts. Now, now Paul, uh, Douglas admits that, that Clement wrote only of someone named Saul. And that person named Saul is described in the pages of Flavius Josephus. And that person named Saul, described by Flavius Josephus, is not Paul of Tarsus. He's an Edomite Sadducee. Well, now, how, many, how many people named Saul might there be in the world? I mean, if some guy in Los Angeles robs a bank with a demand note and signs it, Bill, does that mean we have to arrest you? Because, oh, Bill robbed a bank. Well, well, right, exactly. In the first century, Saul was a popular Hebrew name. Just like that there were many Jesuses. There were many men named Jesus in the first century. And that could be demonstrated. There were three right in Scripture, in the New Testament. So, so it, it's, it's um, that there are many men named Josephs. There are two of them in the New Testament. There are several Jameses in the New Testament. It, it's, it, these names are like Bill and Bob and John and Harry and, and Mike. They're common names. So because some guy somewhere named Saul engages in a persecution, they're going to throw it at the feet of Paul because Paul used to be known as Saul, although they can't prove it's the same one. I guess proof's not important for them, though, is it? Well, well it's not important at all. Clifton, Clifton interjected a note here and elucidated the words of Eusebius about how disappointed the Jews were when Paul was arrested that they didn't get to kill Paul like they wanted to 
and and that perhaps according to um, as Eusebius also suspected they killed James in place of Paul but the murder of James takes place at least two uh, or approximately two years after the, the uh, after Paul went to Rome. But somehow that's Paul's fault. Yeah, Paul almost certainly went to Rome in the... Um, he, he left for Rome in 59 or 60 and arrived the next year in 60 or 61. James was killed in, in 62. And no word. Paul's a magician, though. He snuck out of his cell in Rome, managed to get back to Judea, and then he murdered James. And then he made well, it back well, right. to he, he was under house arrest, but where he was and his location were, were, were well recorded. And, and none of this, you know, the earliest church writers, Clement is one of the earliest, earliest um, Christian writers. He was of the first generation from the apostles. And he knew, I believe he knew the apostle John personally and was taught by the apostle John. Now, Clement became a bishop of Rome, and he himself was martyred. But Clement's writing is very popular. And Clement wrote of a Saul who was the same Saul that Josephus wrote of, but it's definitely not Saul of Tarsus. And Josephus' description would prove that also. Maybe um, Paul had one of his old buddies from the Roman Legion take his place under house arrest, and they thought it was Paul while Paul slipped away to kill James. I'm just suggesting, I mean, if you're going to write a comic book, why not use your imagination? Reference 79. Well, right. so, somebody in the chat wants to know why I don't schedule my talk show recordings, and that's because my talk show recordings are scheduled on org, where I have an event calendar. And I'm on, I'm on talk show every Friday, Saturday night at 8 p.m. But, but I don't consider my programs to be part of talk show because they're broadcast on five Christogenia servers simultaneously. I'm sorry, go on. I just had to respond to that. Reference 79B, Douglas states, and we all know what happened to both James, greater, and the less, Jesus' brother, don't we? Who condemned both of them? Why, those pesky, deceiving Pharisees, Sanhedrin, of course. Well, well, what's what's the um, what's the problem with this? First, the greater James, the um, the greater was James, the the um, the son of Zebedee, right? The brother of Christ was James the Lesser, right? James the son of Zebedee, his death is recorded in the Book of Acts. He was not condemned by the Sanhedrin. He was murdered by Herod purposely murdered by Herod. That would be Herod the Tetrarch, I believe. Or it may have been Herod the Grippa I, but I think it was Herod the Tetrarch that murdered. In fact, it was Herod the Tetrarch that murdered James because, um, no, I'm wrong. It was Herod the Grippa I that murdered James because Herod the Tetrarch was banished to Gaul by Claudius. Herod the Grippa I had, had um, died eaten of worms right after the murder of James. And that's recorded in Josephus and in the book of Acts. I think it's Acts chapter 12. So, so James the Greater was not condemned by the Sanhedrin, right? I mean, 
And, and what does that have to do with Paul of Tarsus? Now, now, the Saul that had persecuted James, it's explained by Josephus, that he was from the family of Herod. And he, he led a band of robbers and caused much, much mischief when Florus was the governor. And, and Josephus does not record the breaking of James' legs or any other such attack on the apostle before his death. That this other Saul is a, um, a, a likely candidate to have been one of the people who stoned James. Josephus only records the stoning of James and his death, which took place after the death of Festus in 62 AD. And, well, when you said um, Herod the Tetrarch, that's Herod Philip the Tetrarch, son of Herod the Great? Herod the Tetrarch was the, the Herod of the time of Christ, and he was the son of Herod the Great, right? Herod Agrippa I, I believe, was also a son of Herod the Great, but by a different wife, or he may have been a grandson. Yeah, Herod Agrippa was a grandson of Herod the Great. Now, now Herod Agrippa II was the Herod of um, Acts chapter 27 and, and where Paul of Tarsus speaks before him and the, um, the Roman governor Festus, right? Right, and they're all Edomites. They are all Edomites. All of the Edomites are Herod. All, all of the Herods are Edomites because they all descended from Herod the Great, or, or at least the, the Herod, the, the Jew rat, the, the, the Jews love to call Herod the Great, right? Which is the... Um, the, the first Herod was king, uh, who was a um, the father. Of the, I'm sorry, the son of Antipater, and, and he was Herod Antipater, and he he bought his way into power then with you know Roman support and influence. Yes, he was made by, by his father. His father was a general for for the um, the Judean army under the last king. Kings of the Maccabees, the, the last of the Maccabees, the high priest who acted, who virtually acted as kings, right? And his father was a general, and his father uh, shrewdly had his own sons made governors of Jerusalem and of Galilee. But while Herod, when his father died, had eliminated all competition to the throne and, and um, eliminated his brother, eliminated all of the Maccabees, had them all slain, had um, he had a lot of the principal men of Judea and Jerusalem slain, and, and then he bribed Mark Antony with 800 talents of silver, I believe, and Mark Antony had him appointed uh, the, the king by the Romans. He, he, he was also a great sycophant to Mark Antony and to Cleopatra. And he, I think it was about 37 B.C. when he became king. And, and that effectively ended the legitimate high priesthood of, of ancient Judah. And, and um, he uses a political tool from that point. So he must be a pretty big hero than the Jews. Oh, yeah, the Jews love Herod the Great. That, that's why they call him Herod the Great. Although he killed the Maccabees, and don't the Jews claim that they're the Maccabees? Well, right. Herod, he was really Herod the scum, but, but he was the typical nefarious, treacherous Jew. I guess the Jews admire those qualities in a man. Well, well you know, Douglas's claim about the Sanhedrin, you know, um, condemning 
James the Greater, which is not really uh, accurate, and, and James the Less. What we've seen from the words of Josephus, and I talked about this last night in concert with Acts chapter 4, that it was the Sadducee, the Sadducee high priest who had Elder James stoned, that the, I'm sorry, James the Less, who, who was James the brother of Christ, and not a Pharisee. And from Acts chapter 12, we see it was the Edomite king, Herod Agrippa I, who was responsible for the death of James, the greater. And, and I think I had the two confused when I originally wrote this, this response. And, but I think the King James Version of the Bible also confuses them. And a lot of mainstream commentators also confuse them. But James' son, Debedee, is actually James the greater. And neither the Pharisees nor the Sadducees are blamed for that in Acts chapter 12. Only Herod is blamed for that. So, so Douglas can't put that on. He can't put either the murder of either James on Paul of Tarsus because the Bible places the blame, as history does, directly on Herod Agrippa I for the, the death of James the Greater and on the Sadducees, who are Edomites, for the death of James the Less. Right, and, and, but now Douglas wants to pin it all on the Pharisees. Well, well, right, and the Pharisees had nothing to do with the death of either, evidently. They definitely had nothing to do with the death of James, the brother of Christ. And, in fact, a lot of them were actually displeased at that. But they had nothing, it's not evitable that they had anything to do with the death of the first James who died in, uh, in, in Acts chapter 12. Nothing at all. So, so Douglas is lying about that. Well, uh, I want to repeat some of Clifton's remarks. In, in uh, this, this is from the opening. Uh, I mean, you might want to read this if we have it without feedback from the opening of this um, 106 teaching letter in February of 106. Right. This is my 106 monthly teaching letter and continues my ninth year of publication. Starting with Watchman teaching letter number 88, we have been continuing a series defending the Apostle Paul from the horrendously false charges that are being hurled at his epistles. And these accusations have their origins among the lowest moral sources one can imagine. I had wanted to do an antithesis, I'm sorry, an antithesis to the Paul Bashers for a long time and had no idea before starting this series that we, William Fink and myself, would uncover so much festering evil at the core of this wicked and unjust doctrine. I want to thank all those who have helped gather all the information and background data to help put this rebuttal material together, exposing the anti-Paulists for what they really are. And as an aside, I'll say for who they really are. I knew that William Fink was more familiar with Paul's epistles than I and enlisted him to put this series together since he has translated all of Paul's letters directly from the Greek and knows firsthand what the Greek truly says which is, in many cases, entirely different than what most people think. After I had read the first few manuscripts, Fink put together, I was not disappointed. We will now pick up his last presentation of this series on the subject. Once more, we shall continue to address the second of Clayton Douglas's Paul-bashing articles, Saul of Tarsus and his Doctrine of Lawlessness which he published in the January 2004 edition of his Free American News Magazine. Here we shall finish with this series of Douglas's Paul-bashing articles and our response to it. 
Right. This is last. This is last equipped with teaching letters. It was twenty teaching letters that this covered, and each one of them was um, eight double column small print pages. Right. It, it was quite voluminous. Uh, I don't think we could imagine what went on. We first started this that it would take twenty with teaching letters, but it did. Well, I, I guess we could say you know Douglas wrote a novel and. Clifton wrote a dissertation in response to the novel. Well, well, right. It it it, it basically is, but it has to be done. It all has to be elucidated. Every um every point has to be thoroughly addressed to show that there is nothing for these charges to really stand on. That these charges are all garbage. That, that every single charge that Douglas and Graeber raised against Paul of Tarsus is garbage. It's based on lies, or it's based on a, a simple and basic misunderstanding of Scripture and, and, and the taking of things out of their historical context and, and, and um, doing what the Judeo-Christians do, applying them to how, however you want to apply them. Reference 80, Clayton Douglas states, Speaking of pesky and deceiving, let us return once more to Paul's statement, which opens up this investigative article. Wow, that's that's almost too much. He refers to Paul as pesky and deceiving. He, he, he should be using those words to refer to himself. And then he calls it an investigative article as though he's some journalist doing the world a service. This is truly amazing, but I digress. Quote, but granting that myself did not burden you, I was crafty, you say, and got the better of you by deceit. Isn't this just a rehash? He's already brought he's already brought this up again. He's already done all this again, and we've already. So he's just re- rehashing. It's just lather, rinse, repeat as needed. Right. Right. Doll of Tarsus, two Corinthians twelve sixteen. Does Christianity accept taking in by deceit as a means of ministering and propagandizing? Does Genesis three one not refer to the serpent as more crafty, more subtle than any beast of the field? Paul himself boasts proudly about sharing this trait with the serpent. Like the serpent, Paul too is subtle and crafty, not trying to deceive you with something appearing as a lie. To convince you, he mixes a small portion of truth with a predominance of pagan lies. The Torah, the law, which Paul mocked and considered a yoke and bondage, says do not steal, do not lie, do not deceive one another. Leviticus 19.11 and we've seen what we've seen when we addressed this several weeks ago that that this was based on that this is um Clay Douglas taking advantage of a poor poorly translated verse and he admitted in the original um when he originally raised this issue in this article he admitted that there was challenges to this translation and and he beckoned us to ignore those challenges to the translation. And, and here Douglas repackages the same arguments well, without mention of several things, such as the, the, the bad translations, which have already been proven to be false. That This is based on a bad translation. And, and Paul says in 2 Corinthians um, 12, 16, but it is that I have not imposed on you Otherwise, the villainous, I have taken you with guile, all Paul's saying was that if he had imposed on the Corinthians, if they were paying his way, in other words, that he would have to admit taking them with guile and villainy. 
that he would have to admit dishonesty. But he did not impose on them at all, and, and therefore he owed them nothing. So he was being honest in, in his approach, and he used that fact that he never imposed on them as a demonstration that he was honest. Douglas is blaming Paul for exactly what Paul is, is basically proving that he didn't do. And that's because Douglas is taking advantage of a poor translation of this verse in the King James Bible. Now, now notice that um, in, in this section, Douglas again refers to the Pentateuch as the Torah. He, he, a couple of paragraphs ago, he referred to the prophets as the Nevi'im. And in the next section, he's going to refer to the writings of, of the Old Testament the books of the prophets and, and the Psalms as the Tanakh, which is the Jewish names, name for the writings of the prophets, Psalms, and, and some other books of the Old Testament. They call it the Tanakh. Now, Christian writers sometimes use the word Torah, but they scarcely use the word Tanakh. And many Christians don't even know what it is. And, and this is strong evidence of Jewish influence, and it's found throughout all of Douglas' Argos. How long until we see G hyphen D? Right. I think they had to bring themselves to write, you know, God out because G hyphen D would have been an instant giveaway. Right. Reference 81A, Douglas states, but when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the natives saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said one to another, No doubt this man is a murderer, whom though he has escaped from the sea, yet justice is not allowed to live. However, Paul shook off the creature into the fire and wasn't harmed, but they expected that he would have swollen or fallen down dead suddenly, but when they watched for a long time and saw nothing bad happen to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. Acts 28, 3-6 here we are told that the natives, though receiving Paul well at first, realized that it was an aberration of nature for a snake to attack someone who is in fact laying sticks on a fire. Snakes themselves are repelled by fire, and it would be quite abnormal for a viper to attack a man without any provocation who was so near to the fire that he is in fact laying sticks in it. When the natives saw this, they realized that Paul's shipwreck was not merely coincidence. He had in fact been subject to the wrath of God, the same as Prophet Jonah was said to have been in the Tanakh for his reluctance, just as the same as in that case the stormy sea was a sign of God's anger. Here, Paul's Antichrist cult does not allow us any such interpretation. Nonetheless, this was the first and natural understanding of the natives of Malta. Paul's devotee, Luke, tells us in the book of Acts that when Paul did not die from the bite of this abnormal viper, they said that it is, they uttered, not merely thought to themselves, that he was a god. Nowhere in this passage does the devotee Luke tell us that the apostate Paul said one word to the contrary. Doesn't that seem a little strange for an allegedly God-fearing man not to deny a claim that he is a god? Moreover, in the city of Lystra, Paul causes a riot by supposedly healing a man. During the riot, people shout in their native dialect that Paul and Barnabas are gods come to earth. Again, there is no denial of these claims recorded in Acts. 
Well, if I'm not mistaken, there were numerous riots because of Jesus' ministry, but we don't blame Jesus just because the Edomites provoke a riot. Well, well, right, and, and and basically Douglas is lying because there is a denial of that claim recorded in Acts, which we shall see. All right. The fact that Paul did not dispute their claims that he was a god is not at all an insignificant matter. When Apollonius of Tiana was supposedly tried before the emperor Domitian at the end of the first century, one of the charges against him was that he had supposedly allowed himself to be worshipped as a god. More or less the same charges falsely applied to Jesus Christ, despite the fact that he never claimed godhood, nor did anyone else attribute it to him. Well, well firstly, just because Luke didn't record any denial of Paul's in Acts chapter 28, when the people of Malta imagined him to be a god, doesn't mean that such a denial wasn't made or that Paul accepted their supposition. There's no sign at all of acceptance of such a supposition there. Yet Douglas is plainly lying about the incident at Lystra, where the people imagined Paul and Barnabas to be gods. This is Acts chapter 14, verses 11 and 12. That upset Paul and Barnabas so, so much that they tore their own clothing. Acts 14, 14. The ancient way of exhibiting one's humility and they ran among the people denying it, admitting to be merely men. That's in Acts 14:15. So Clayton Douglas proves himself to be the spouter of lies. The spouter of lies from the Dead Sea Scrolls, that's the person that wrote this article, right? Well, we needn't go to Apollonius of Tiana and his trial to see the gravity of the accusation here, where one should fail to deny his elevation by the people to the status of a god. There is a clear example right in the Bible, and it was recorded by Luke in Acts chapter 12, where it is said that Herod Agrippa I was struck dead for not denying the claims of the people that he was a god. The historian Josephus, in, in Antiquities Book 19, attributes Herod Agrippa I's death to that very same cause, so Josephus and Luke agree. They don't agree on all of the details of the incident. They see it from two different perspectives, but they do agree on the causes of death and the time of death of Herod Agrippa I. Now, Luke and Paul, knowing that, were surely aware of the punishments for such impiety, especially since Luke recorded that in Acts 12. And, and, and they surely should have known of the punishments for, for, for such a lack of humility and, and the acceptance of the foolishness of common people, right? The people of Malta were not uncivilized savages. The Greeks considered them barbarian only because they spoke a different tongue. Diodorus Siculus, in his Library of History, in Book Book 5, Chapter 12, says of Malta that, and, and I'll quote, it lies about 800 stades from Syracuse, and it possesses many harbors which offer exceptional advantages, and its inhabitants are blessed in their possessions, for it has artisans skilled in every manner of craft, and the dwellings on the island are worthy of note, being ambitiously constructed and finished in stucco, with unusual workmanship. This island is a colony planted by the Phoenicians, 
who, as they extended their trade to the Western Ocean, found in it a place of safe retreat. So, Bill, so I assume the, the people at Malta at the time, they were speaking Phoenician? Well, well yes, they were probably speaking um, Phoenician, or actually they were speaking a form of Hebrew or Aramaic, possibly. And that, that would have been understood by Paul and Luke, right? At least to a great extent. It may have been a different dialect than they spoke, but I'm sure it was quite close. So, so it may be conjectured that the Maltese being Phoenicians and Paul being a Hebrew speaker, they could surely speak to each other in a tongue, which the Greek Luke, Luke was a Greek, and he could not understand their language. And so Paul's denial may not have been recorded for that reason. But it doesn't matter. It doesn't mean that such a denial wasn't made. And it gets worse as Douglas continues, if you want to read his next charge. 81B, Douglas states, Even when any type of special status was alluded to regarding him, Jesus abrogated it by saying, Why do you call me God? One alone is God. Mark 10:18, and humbly proclaiming that even greater works than these shall you do. John now, Douglas here is um, attempting a magic trick, right? He's attempting a sleight of hand magic trick. And uh, he must have got it from all the Jewish magic books he's read. Because in Mark 10, 18, Christ is recorded as saying, Why do you call me good? There is no one good but one that is God. So he's just, he's just hoping that O will disappear. Right. He, he yeah, You know, the, the word processor being quicker than the I, he removed an O from good in an attempt to magnify his false accusation against Paul. He's also attempting to erode the divinity of Jesus. Well, well Douglas is the comedian from the Dead Sea Scrolls. That's Clayton Douglas. Uh, I mean, there is no comedian in the Dead Sea Scrolls, right? Douglas invented the character, so it must be him. The, the two words are, are, are much harder to confuse in Greek, right? Theos and Agathos rather than God and good. Elsewhere, Christ stated, is it not written in your law? I said, ye are gods, a reference to the 82nd Psalm in John 10:34. Now, the Jews thought that by calling oneself a son of God, one considered oneself equal to God, and they considered that a blasphemy in spite of the scripture at Deuteronomy 14.1 and Psalm 82. Since surely Blake Douglas shows an ignorance of that also. So, so uh, 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 he's ignorant all around, right? Finally, we have already seen Douglas himself acknowledge that Paul was nearly blind. And, and Douglas did acknowledge that, and, and we covered that. Douglas acknowledged Paul's blindness. Paul, wanting to lend a hand in the situation on Malta following a shipwreck by, by building the fire, right? By helping to build the fire. He picks up a bundle of sticks and places them onto a fire, under the fire. A viper, which must have come out of that same bundle of sticks, and which Paul, being almost blind, did not see, sprung out of the bundle of sticks and bit Paul on the hand. Now, the viper avoided the fire. So, so there's nothing abnormal about that scenario. Douglas has invented his own scenario and, and excuses for it, but there's nothing abnormal about that. If you 
um, had a pile of sticks nearby and decided to build a fire, and there happened to be a snake in that pile of sticks. And the snake doesn't expect you to pick up the pile of sticks that the snake is in, and you throw those sticks on the fire. The snake is going to is going to coil out of there and and bite you. I mean, that's natural, right? Or bite the nearest person, or maybe if we're lucky, it'll just slither away. Well, well, right, but Paul wasn't lucky, and it bit him. Well, well, he couldn't see, right? So he wouldn't have been able to see the snake and bundle the snakes, possibly, because Douglas admits that he was blind. I, I mean, come on. So, so it's all perfect. It's a perfectly normal situation, and the people of Malta interpreted Paul to be a god because he didn't fall down dead from the snake bite. So, so what's the problem? Their superstition wasn't fulfilled, so they called Paul a god. And, and Paul certainly must have denied it because he emphatically denied the same thing in Acts chapter 12. Paul shouldn't be blamed because Luke didn't record a denial. It's that simple. There's nothing to charge Paul with here. Nothing at all. Reference 82? Yes. Douglas states, so who is right? Is Jesus correct when he says, I have not come to abolish the law? So I, I guess now, Matthew chapter 5, it's not only written by Matthew, but it's the words of Jesus. But Matthew 7, we still have to take, those are the words of Paul. Is Jesus correct? They, only on Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Saturdays. <laughs> so who is right? Is Jesus correct when he says, I have not come to abolish the law? Or is Paul right when he says that Jesus destroyed the barrier by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations? Hebrews 10 19 through 20. Was Jesus Christ right when he said that heaven and earth would sooner pass away than one letter of the law? Or should we instead follow Paul, who said the antithesis antithesis of Christ's words, but now the law has come to an end with Christ, and everyone who has faith may be justified. Romans 10, 14. Well, well, let me say, you know, you know, Christ said, I have come not to abolish the law and the prophets, I have come to fulfill them, right? And that word fulfill in Greek also means to bring to an end, right? But it doesn't mean to abolish them. The, the first part of Douglas' statement here comes from Hebrews chapter comes not from Hebrews chapter ten, but from Ephesians two fourteen. In Ephesians chapter two, Paul is discussing the reconciliation of the lost Israelites, which the Ephesians surely were a part of, to Yahweh God by his sacrifice on the cross. Because Israel the nation was married to Yahweh, and Israel played the harlot. The nation was put off and divorced by Yahweh. The Levitical law governing marital relations prevented the reconciliation of the husband. Okay? And in Deuteronomy also, it's it's explicit that you cannot accept back a wife who was found with another man. And, and Israel was in idolatry, and that is the... the, the um, symbology which the Old Testament uses to represent Israel's relationship to God. Israel is the bride, the wife of God. Now, the law was the barrier or the middle wall in the the AP, which Paul mentioned. Thus, Yahweh died on the cross for Israel. God came as a man and died on the cross for Israel, fulfilling the law and freeing Israel from the laws of the wife in the Old Covenant. 
All of this is a clear matter of prophecy. It's, it, it's in Isaiah, it's in Hosea, it's in Jeremiah. It's all clearly laid out in the prophets that this is the way God was going to reconcile himself to the children of Israel. It's explained by Paul in Romans chapter 7, in, in verses one, the first 12 verses of that chapter, I believe. And, and, and Douglas doesn't understand it. That's not Paul's fault, right? That the... Um, but what Paul explains to the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 2 is the perfect keeping with the words of the prophets which Christ came to fulfill. Douglas continues by misquoting Romans 10.4. He mislabels it as Romans 10.14. Romans 10.4 says, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believes. And that word and is the Greek word telos, and it means fulfillment. And, and that's how the Christian New Testament reads, fulfillment. Liddell and Scott, in the Greek-English lexicon, define the word, the fulfillment or completion of anything, the consummation, issue, result, and Christ tells himself that he came to fulfill the law using that same word. And because Paul agrees, Paul correctly tells us that Christ is the fulfillment of the law. Clayton Douglas is, is, is the man of Scott. There's no conflict between what Paul says and what Christ says. They're both saying the same thing and using the same word. We can move on with 83. All right. Reference 83, Douglas states, Again, I ask you, did Jesus Christ not say himself that a slave cannot serve two masters? You cannot be the slave of two masters. You will either like one more than the other or be more loyal to one than the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Matthew 6.24. So which master do Christians now serve? Which master do you serve? Does this have anything to do with Paul? No, nothing. It has nothing at all to do with Paul. I, I, I fail to see the relevance. Most, most of these two articles really had nothing to do with Paul. They had everything to do with what was um, Clayton Douglas um, having Jews could write critical theses right, but he, on he just, Christianity, right? He just stuck a verse in here. I mean, it's as though you're in a, in a contract law case and you want to cite a, a traffic court case in Russia. It's not relevant. It means nothing. Nothing at all. He's, assuming, he's basically trying to tell us that Paul of Tarsus is lawless and, and telling us not to follow Christ, right? Or, or right. That we and it's, it's, it's another false accusation, right? For this very reason, Paul of Tarsus told the Romans, Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourself servants to obey, his servants you are to whom you obey. Paul's saying the same thing, right? Whether of sin unto death or of obedience, obedience, obedience to the law he's talking about, which he says in Romans chapter 3, Christians should seek to establish, right? Obedience unto righteousness. I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity in your flesh, for as you have yielded your members' servants to uncleanness and to iniquity, to sin, right? Even so, now yield your members' servants to righteousness and holiness, what which is sanctification and separation in, in the, the will of God, right? And, and that's Romans chapter 6. Now, now both words... Which the King James, well, well, the Christianity New Testament has iniquity there, is other words, anomia, which is lawlessness, literally. 
and I'm quoting what King James has iniquity, I believe, that the um, anomia is lawlessness. And, and Paul's telling these people not to surrender themselves to lawlessness. Paul of Tarsus was certainly not promoting lawlessness. He was promoting obedience, and that obedience was to Christ, who said, if you love me, keep my commandments, right? And Paul tells us in the last verse of Romans chapter 3 that Christians should strive to establish the law of God. Douglas is just taking Paul's words out of context and using them however he wants to apply them. And that's dishonest also. Well, that's his main tactic, isn't it? Well, well absolutely. And, and, and it, it fools people. And it, it shouldn't if they really well, – well, you, you know, the, the, the biggest problem with Paul's epistles is that they're the most mistranslated books of all the books in the Bible, the epistles of Paul, and second are the writings of Luke. And there aren't a lot of – there really are not a lot of, a lot of mistranslations in the writings of John and Matthew and Mark in, in the King James Version. But the writings of John and Matthew and Mark also um, weren't taken advantage of and don't supply enough material to take advantage of in, in order to corrupt the, the um, church doctrine in the manner in which the later church wanted to corrupt, well, wanted to corrupt church doctrine. The Bible was translated for reason politics much more often than it was translated for, for um, by honestly speaking Christians speaking the truth. The King James Bible is, is the approved political version of, of Scripture. Right, but that doesn't mean it's the best. No, it's horrible. And the, word, the letters of Paul are translated in a manner which basically um, creates a universalism that Paul never promoted and creates a lawlessness which Paul never promoted. But that's not Paul's fault. Well, you know, um, Jefferson wrote, all men are created equal at a time when most races weren't considered men. And people today say, oh, the founders wanted a multiracial republic. All men are created equal. Jefferson's not to blame for that. Right. Reference 84, Douglas states, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not drive out demons in your name? Did we not do mighty deeds in your name? Then will I declare to them solemnly, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now, hold on a minute. I thought Paul wrote Matthew 7. Isn't that incredible, right? Or, or I guess Paul wrote the first few verses in Matthew 7 about judge not and how can you perceive the um, the beam in your eye if you're focused <laughs> on the splinter in your, your neighbor's eye. So Paul, Paul didn't write, you know, or he, he wrote those first verses, but he didn't write 21 through 23 about, you know, depart from me, workers of iniquity. Well, well right. Paul wrote one, Matthew 7, 1 through 6, right? That's a Paulism. That's incredible. It, it's it's gets worse all the time. Aside from the fact this isn't relevant to anything anyway, I mean, it, it's, ni it's nice gospel, I agree with it, but it's not relevant to the paper, it, it doesn't reinforce the argument he's trying to advance, it's just like 
he's grabbing verses out of thin air. and Well, not thin air. I mean, it actually exists. He's just grabbing verses randomly and saying, oh, Matthew 7 goes here. Matthew, Matthew 6 goes there. Matthew 5 goes here. And it's all good gospel, but it's not relevant to the discussion at hand. Yeah, you know, I took this occasion in the original paper to, to elucidate um, the fact that Paul understood that the high priests, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, that, that, and, and the high priests at this time were Sadducees, right? I demonstrated last night in my Acts chapter 4 presentation that the high priests throughout most of the ministry, throughout the time of the ministry of Christ, and throughout most of the time from 6 A.D. until the fall of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., 64 years, for most of that time, the high priests were Sadducees, were of the party of the Sadducees, and were of the same family of Annas and Caiaphas, who we see in Scripture. Annas and Caiaphas, son-in-law, each had five sons that followed them in the high priesthood. Well, Bill, when you said Caiaphas, is that just your way of referring to the guy I would pronounce as Caiaphas? You're referring to the guy who ripped his shirt? Yes. Okay. I just want to make sure that we were thinking the same guy. He's the son-in-law of Anna. Between them, they each had five sons who followed in the high priesthood. And they were, that they were almost certainly Edomites, and these are 12 men who are Sadducees who hold the high priesthood. Annas alone for 23 years, and Caiaphas for at least four. And I don't know how many exactly, but for at least four years. So those two alone for 27 years. And, and ten of their sons after between them, that they had the priesthood, these Sadducees, for most of the time from 6 A.D. to 70 A.D. Now, Paul understood that these high priests were actually, that they were Satan. They were satanic in nature. And he explains that. In, in his second epistle to the Thessalonians, where, where Paul talks about the, these people in Jerusalem by saying, you should not be deceived by anyone in any way because if apostasy did not come first, and the man of lawlessness revealed, the son of destruction, he who is opposing and exalting himself above everything that's said to be a god or an object of worship, and so he is seated in the temple of Yahweh representing himself that he is a god. And that's Paul tells us who the actual man of lawlessness is, the Edomite king, and I do. And that was revealed by Christ, and it was evident throughout the Gospels. Well, aren't they doing that today? They're their own Messiah. They've made themselves God. Right. And, and Paul also lays out in Romans chapter 9 that the, the, those vessels of destruction who are opposed to Christ, they're not Israelites, but they're Edomites. And it's only Paul in all of Scripture, who expressly teaches that. that. Now, we can get bits and pieces of it from John and from Matthew and from Luke, but Paul expressly lays that out. And that's, I think that's why he's such a target. Because they want to corrupt the church into a universalist, antinomian vehicle. That is also why Paul's Scriptures are, are the most mistranslated. So, so, so it's you know once you understand the substance of Paul's writing, 
and what it does and what it reveals to us, it, it's no wonder Paul's a target. And he always has been. All right. Reference 85. Well, we'll leave it here for tonight, and, and we'll pick up the, the last segment of this program with Reference 85. All right. So that will be in the next week. Or, or if you want to take a break from this. And, and the next segment of, of this will definitely be the last one in which we address Clayton Douglas. We are going to have further um, poll bashing segments later this year, and we're going to address some of the works of um, W.G. Finlay and um, some of the newer poll bashers who have come along. All right, so we will wrap this up next week, do the summary, I guess, or... Maybe we'll take a break, but we're basically done with Douglas, right? I mean, he's, he's about well, to put out the pasture. We're going to have one more Douglas segment, yes, and, and we'll summarize some of the highlights and things and like then that. It's, it's off to the glue factory for that broken-down horse. We put him out well, the pasture. Yeah, absolutely, but, but it, it, this, this series definitely needed to be done. I mean, it had to be done. We had some good laughs along the way. The material, it, it, it would be funny if not for the fact that so many people are actually taking this jackass, this clown, seriously. Right, and he is a clown. And and uh, I haven't found a Paul Basher that was a good scholar yet. I just haven't. Well, maybe there's one out there. I mean, we, we haven't really gone after Finley, and I, I suppose Spong knows the Bible. He just doesn't care because he's a pervert, but... As we said, you know, Graber could barely spell his own name, and Douglas can't, you know, figure out that it doesn't make sense to tell people that Paul wrote the second half of Matthew 7, but Jesus wrote the first half, or, you know. Well, well right, and, and, and um, you know, Finlay, W.G. Finlay openly professed Jacqueline Prince, the rabbi from Newark, the, right. the, the, the race-mixing promoter of... of um, Civil rights for Negroes and, and all sort of the homosexual agenda. He he was as bad as John Spong, and he was a Jew, of course, and and a, a chief rabbi for a big the biggest synagogue in Newark, New Jersey, and W. G. Finley openly professed him as the source for much of his material discrediting Paul Tarsus. Well, well, of course, Jacqueline Prince, the Jew, would want to discredit Paul Tarsus. Well, I think they're all clowns, and they stand discredited. Well, well, you know, when when a Christian uses a Jew as as a source authority for anything Christian, that that should be automatically discredited. You lose. That's period. Kind of, the, the argument's over. Right. If if a Jew is your source for any critique of Christianity, yet you've already lost uh, by believing a Jew. Because when a Jew moves his lips, he's lying. And when a, when you see a rabbi, that there's already been a crime. You're looking at a crime ring. You're 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 looking at a walking one man crime ring. And you look at a rabbi. I can't disagree. That's right. what they. Okay, praise Yahweh, and thank you for listening. And and we'll be back next week. I'm I'm not sure what we're going to present next week. We'll, we'll um, leave it open for discussion, and, and it'll be on the event calendar at Christagenia.org. I use TalkShoe as a vehicle, as an outlet for my recordings. TalkShoe is not the home of my work, and and my event calendar is at Christagenia. All right, praise.
Prejali, thank you. Prejali, and thank you. We will see you soon. Good night.